This truly special episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Gamma of the Adelaide region. We acknowledge Ananu of the Ananu Pitjanjara Yakunjara lands. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging and honour their glorious history, cultures and the beautiful traditions of their storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I am your host, Savas Savas. For 25 years, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences to some of Australia's premier events and intimate gatherings. During this time, I've observed the relationships people have with food and devoured thousands of conversations around it. I believe that every memory can be pinned to a food experience and every food experience can trigger a memory. Food memories shape who we are and remind us where we have come from. One of my early food memories is eating a banana paddle pop on the miniature train at Bronte Beach in Sydney. Join me as we move the fork around my guest three food memories to reveal what their memories tell us about them and motivates them to make our world a better place. Each guest will share a social cause close to their heart at the end of the episode. This episode of Plated Three Food Memories has been split in two parts. As you will discover, Our guest today sits confidently and comfortably in her identity and thusly happy to educate us and join the many dots when it comes to our national identity. Sally Scales is a Pitjantjara woman from the APY lands in remote South Australia. She is a leader on the Uluru Statement Reform and an established artist at the APY Arts Centre Collective as well as foster mother to six-year-old Walter. Sally's indigeneity is strong and fortified thanks to her parents, who, she says, brought up my siblings and me strong in both worlds of Ananu, indigenous, and Pirampa, non-indigenous. We grew up knowing we had to use our voices for our families and communities. In the letters of Aretha Franklin, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, Sally, welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I'm really happy to have you. Thanks for having me, Sava. Sally, I just want some help here and assistance. Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, Indigenous, First Nations. How would you like me to refer to you? Um, so for me, uh, I'm an Anangu woman, which is our word for people. So that's probably the best way. But I mean, for in, I'm an Aboriginal woman is what I would consider myself. Um, and I think in the context of when you're talking about Australia as a whole, I always say First Nations peoples because we have to understand that there was 500, you know, First Nations tribes here before um, non-Indigenous people came. And Sally, when we speak about our First Nations people, how did the communities interact? How did they meet and know about each other before the white man arrived? I mean, there's lots of old stories about trading routes. I mean, for us, you know, I'm a Pijanjara woman I'm from the APY lands and the, it, that stands for Anangu Pijanjara Yankunjara. So that's two tribes together and, you know, they were neighbourings. And then you also have Nyanjara, which is just over the WA border, 
which so those three sort of share a common dialect I suppose you can say in language group and so but you can see that there's old trading routes a great example is the fact that in Kirikara which is in um, in the central desert has an old trading route that goes to Port Hedland to Balgo and they know this by the shells the pearl shells that are there in the central desert but also the designs on artworks as well so how it travels through. And so what did they trade? Was it food items, artifacts? It would it would definitely be food items and water locations and things like that. And also, you know, when people are travelling through your land, you have to look after them. You know, that's your responsibility to care for and, you know, and look after them because they're on your country. You know, a lot of Aboriginal people think so much about the visitors to our space and how we have to look after them. And were they, and and when they came together, these communities and these tribes, how did they communicate if they had different dialects? There is, I mean, there is a common. I mean, look, I'm a Pinjara woman, and I'm I'm very privileged in the fact that as an Aboriginal woman, I still have my language and culture. You know, unfortunately, there is a lot of Australia um, First Nations people who have lost that language um, because of colonisation, and I always consider myself very lucky and privileged to have mine. But when you look at history and those old trading routes, you know, there is a common language that goes through, but it's also they would have made do with hand signals and stuff like that. And also intermarriages as well is a big way that people started to have conversations. Yeah. <laughs> and Sally, these trading routes, do they, do they come up much in traditional storytelling that passed down from elders to the junior members of the, 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 the tribes and community? I mean, I uh, I wouldn't necessarily say the trading routes, but there is like I mean, if you look at the Seven Sisters, that constellation story and how it travels across Australia and also across all the different you know language groups, you know you can see that there is a common space for it, and everyone knows where that goes through. I mean, and especially around the APY lands, everyone's got a song line a link to the Seven Sisters. You know, it's we know where it goes, and we know which which country it sits on as it goes through. Do you remember hearing these stories as a little girl? Oh, yeah. I mean, I always, like, so for me, so I just have to say I hate the terminology dream time or dreaming because it's so fickle. It's so... What makes it fickle? Because I think, because you've got to remember our, our, our word for our stories is jukurpa and jukurpa is our law it's our customs, it's our connection to country, it's our connections to each other, it's it's rooted in family, it's rooted in a sacred site. And for someone to say, oh, this law of yours is a dreaming or a dream time. Who came up just... with the term, who came up with the term dream time? Is it a white man thing? Yeah, of course. Like <laughs> that, but it's also like, but imagine if they actually said, oh, my God, this space, this sacred site, this this cave, these sacred trees are a law. They're connected to this space. How different would we treat those sacred sites? You know, instead of saying, well, this is just a dreaming space. And it just, I just feel like it can just be thrown away because everyone thinks of a, you know, a dream is something that just happened overnight. You know, devalues, not something... It devalues the... Um... It's significant the story, story. Yeah, the, yeah, the significance. And I mean, and, you know, we're so comfortable talking about and using 
you know, I always think about, you know, we're so comfortable saying Russian author's name and artist's name and, you know, European names, but we're not comfortable talking about Aboriginal words for places. Why do you think you know? that is? Well, it's, it goes back to our own relationships to it as well, you know. It's, First Nations it's, people's relationships? No, but our relation as as Australians, our relationships right. to First Nations people. So when you refer to Australians, you're referring everyone that lives here, white yeah. and First Nations. Okay. You know, for us, we, I mean, that it goes back. I mean, I'm so lucky and privileged to have mine. Um, you know, and so that's where I'm like, well, let's reclaim this space. I'm not using Dreamtime ever. It's my Jukudpa is connected to me, and you will learn how to say Jukudpa. You know, Jukudpa. Yeah. Jukupa. Yeah. Well, and that's, yeah, now you know. <laughs> now I do know. Thank you, Sally. So, Sally, I want to get on to your food memories. Um, so it's go time. But when I read them, you did something really sneaky. You embedded several, like I wouldn't say several, I'd say eight to ten food experiences in each one. So when I read through them, I'm like, this woman is going to drive me nuts. But I'm happy to, I'm happy to go with you on it. It's, they're very exciting. So I want you to start with your first one, please, Sally, which is very, which has deep roots in family. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I was very sneaky in the fact that instead of just one, um, I did more the people and the experiences of those peoples and the time. And so my first one is my parents. And so it would be damper for my mother. And it's my mum is the best damper maker in the world. Uh you know, so damper, I suppose you can say, is what, a f- fluffy bread? <laughs> fluffy bread. <laughs> fluffy bread, um, you know, and it's it's funny when you think about in the world how connected bread is in every community around the world, you know, that notion of flour, water to make, you know, whether it's a pita bread or whether it's a naan bread or whether it's a, it's a damper for you know, First Nations people. Um, But my mum, it just, the way she would knead the flour and the water together to make and let it sit and rise and, you know, now she uses, you know, raising agents into it at all. But it just reminds me of her hands, so you know, the, the memory is her hands working the flour and the water oh, together, yeah. kneading and, and combining Combining Which... totally, and it's just. But then, because my mum is also a Ngankri, so she's a traditional healer. So you know, it makes me then think of my mum in that space where she's then being a Ngankri and working her skills, you know, on someone who's ill, you know. And then, then she's also an artist. So I then, you know, it's a flashes of her painting and things like that. So it just, it builds those memories of your parents, you know, as you think. But the way she would need and you would just sit there and be amazed and, and then... Um, would she, she would just talk sort of, while she was needing? Yeah, she would talk. And, I mean, she would forever try and get me to do it, but I, I'm really bad at making them. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I have the patience for it. Or <laughs> mine end up being so dense and hers is like thick and fluffy and it and you know and it doesn't matter where the great thing about damper it is doesn't really matter where you cook it because you can have it in a camp oven 
so it's a sort of the little camp oven sort of thing that goes in the coals or you can put it in the oven or you can fry it on top in a frying pan so it's a deep pan frying pan so where did she learn to make this damper it's so i mean you know the easiest sort of when non-indigenous people came out like that was the easiest sort of payment was flour and you know the rations sort of um but sorry selling payment for oh whether it was them buying things or early stuff i mean it was dingo scalpings was one um living on the mission it's all those sorts of things you just get in exchange the white man would give flour flour tea bag tea leaf and sugar essentially so that's how this this food came into the first nations diet well no because we we did have damper beforehand you know so there's old we've got old um you know uh leaves that people used to get and grind so you'd have to it was a long process to grind it and it was sort of like a i suppose you can say it was more like a patty cake rather than a big yeah. damper um but, yeah, you would have to grind it and get it and, you know, make it into sort of a paste. And then, yeah, you would put it on the hot coals soil near the camp, uh, near the fire, and, that, and that's how it was. So, yeah. So does Chukurpa change over time? No, no. So Chukurpa doesn't change. That The, the connections to our, our space doesn't change. Um, I think, you know, Every new generation has different things to live by and live through. Um, we know that. You know, we see that every, as, as parents ourselves. Um, and I think what I know about my communities is the resilience in them. You know, they're very much saying, you know, we're not going anywhere and we're very much here. And also this is our space and, you know, making sure that that's very much known, that they have that space and how do we listen. And it's really about the wider Australian learning to listen and participate in a way that's asked of them, not what the way that they force themselves onto our communities. Um, Sally, so what, what can the white Australian do? Well, I mean, that really goes into the Uluru Statement and what we're trying to do there. I mean, this is a... The Uluru is, is that making heart. headway? Do you feel like you're, you're you're gaining traction with that and it's moving things in the right direction? We know that there is a huge percentage of people that do support it and will be fine with it. The 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 frustrating bit is, as always, is government. <laughs> um, and you know, I look at it in the way that there's a few things with it. I mean, with the Uluru statement. We've got to remember that this was gifted to the Australian people almost five years ago. Next May, it'll be five years since Uluru was given to Australians. And it's about how do we support this and how do we go for it? Because with the Uluru Statement, that wasn't asking for a lot. And it was also given with such hope and love. What was it asking for? The way I explain it is the voice is giving First Nations people a voice at the table. And the table is government. The table is parliament and saying, let us be at this... Federal. Federal. And saying, let us be at this table. When it comes to decisions about us, let us be there to talk about all the intricacies about our communities. 
And then on top of that, then you've got the Makarata Commission, so it's actually doing that process of a treaty negotiation. And then the truth element is really about how do we start to have conversations about the truth of our history, the truth of Australia and what it means to be Australian. Does it get frustrating that you have to have those conversations? Like... No, because I think it's uh, no, because for me, I look at it in a way I will continue to have these conversations because if I can educate someone about why this is important to me, but also why it should be important to them, it's always going to be a better outcome. And the more people are aware of your own back, your background, the less ignorant they are going to be about it, you know. And I think about it in the fact that like we had the most horrific bushfires. Now, everyone Mm. talked about how, you know, we should be talking to Aboriginal groups and rangers and incorporating that. But what's happened with that? There is no one word that can describe the catastrophe caused by the bushfires. When it comes to fire prevention and damage minimisation, I know strong Indigenous knowledge and age-old practice exists. These practices were presented to fire authorities by our First Nations people and frustratingly ignored. Sally, in in 2008, Kevin Rudd did his sorry speech. What feeling did that arouse? Um, It was incredible to have that, like to see that and for, you know, for me, I really felt for those communities who had lived through that experience of being removed and for those, you know, families who still live through that, Um, you know, because it's not... It's uh, the unfortunate thing is, since Kevin Rudd said sorry, there's been more children removed from First Nations families than the period before. And you got to remember, these are people who, you know, if you think about that generation, that that group were, that were removed, whose children, who's ha- had you know those lived traumas is passed through, and so it's really, it's heartbreaking, and you know it's. The recommendations that constantly First Nations people give are never heeded to. I mean, look at the Royal Commission into Death in Custody. And, you know, I talk about Professor Davis. She just did one for the um, New South Wales um, Aboriginal young people, um, the foster system there and um, removal there and just huge recommendations, which I don't think is ever going to be um, heard at all. And Sally, why do you think white Australia is not listening to their First Nations people? What is it? What is the barrier? There clearly is a barrier because they're not taking the advice. The thing is, though, what we know is that 87% to 92% of, of, of Australians support a First Nations voice, an enshrined voice, which means that we have to go to a referendum so, so we embed it in our constitution. Now... We know that, but it's also, you've got to remember, Sava, that the way that the media play is that negative stories sell more than a positive one. And so this whole thing of you can't be what you can't see. And so for me, you know, doing those appearances on Q&A, talking about things, it's like these are incredible Aboriginal leadership here. We want to be on that space and we want to go there you got to let us. And also people are willing to have those conversations. And, you know, we constantly talk about how does the voice react back to you? Now, all the statement was given to you as well. How do you then pick that up and say, I'm carrying this stick 
this message as well for me and my children or me and my family. There's a beautiful quote, there's a beautiful sentence in it and saying, there, you know, our First Nations children will be gift to our nation. You know, this will be a gift to our nation. And, you know, the incredible bit about the Uluru Statement, it's also, it's not the first time that a statement or a petition has been given to government. You look in Canberra, they've got literally the Bark Petition, the Ukala Petition, the Baranga Statement, all these, all these incredible, powerful statements from First Nations people in there. And we had a previous Prime Minister who cried in front of it and said, I failed who you. Who was he? Hawk. Bob Hawk. And, you know, and my thing is like, I don't need to know that. And also, I don't care. You failed us. I don't want your sympathy tears anymore. And that's for all outgoing prime ministers. They all have something similar to say, I wish I did more for First Nations of people. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? You know, this is what our leadership is. This is a space of complacency we're currently in. I, I was in it for sure. I got sick and tired of politics when we had, you know, the this, this swap and change leadership period in time where it was like, oh, my God, come on, guys, get it together, have a backbone, decide, push forward, you know. But they were having their own internal politics of going, oh, 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 oh. I want to be leader. No, I want to be leader, you know. Yeah. It's like, yeah. no, yeah. We, we voted you in. We... Australians went to the polls and voted you in. And what are you doing? You know, and it's for the frustrating bit when it comes to the f- Aboriginal affairs in the politics in that space is that they are bipartisan when it comes to Aboriginal people, Aboriginal policies, Aboriginal processes, all of that. Anything else they separately opposed. And so they use that as a space of not moving the needle too far. What can we do as Australians to support the Uluru Well, go on the Uluru website. Yep, go on the Uluru Statement website. Um, So go on the website. There's an incredible thing that you would also love, Salvo, is that the Uluru Statement has actually been translated into multiple languages, First Nations as well as European backgrounds. So you would be able to play it for your own family in their own language. Wow. You know, so it's it's been done in that space, but it's also going, we... So that talks <laughs> about its inclusivity. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. Let's get everyone in on this. Let's make it easy. Yeah. We can't make it any easier for you. But also, like, you would know that for, coming from another background, having that duality, you're more receptive to having other people involved. Mm-hmm. You're more receptive of going, let's go work, work together, you know the struggles of what it means to be an immigrant child is similar to the struggles of what it means to be an Aboriginal child. You know, you're going through life where everyone's judging you in a different way or, you know, form. So it's like, how do we go through this? And it's like, we understand each other. Let's just move. Yeah, we're all human. We're all human on this land. I mean, it goes into that. I mean, it's, there is an incredible space in all of that. But it's also like we're coming up to an election and we're coming up to election. What people can do, look at the Uluru Statement and push their ministers. Because right in, you know, everyone's good about going on a march, but imagine if whoever went on a march then wrote a letter to their MPs, how different that conversations would be. 
you know, 5,000 5, people go on a march, 5,000 letters to an MP, you know, so mm. it's moving that along and also saying what's their agenda? You know, everyone's going to be on campaign mode. What? How are you going to keep saying to them, how are you going to include, what's your stance on the voice? What's your stance on the First Nations voice? Put it to them. Make sure you have it on there. That makes so much sense. We, Sava, we've gotten complacent because we've gotten to a space of, and also the last two years have been really tricky, like just going, oh, my God, COVID, F survival. off. But it's also survival, but it's also we've gotten complacent because we've gotten that we are, you know, we look at our own personal wins and go, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Yeah. We've stopped looking at community in that space of what is community in my life, immediate, what is community in the next circle around, and the next circle around, and the next circle around. And that's what we need to do more of actually, you know. Because, I mean, look, if we all started to be vocal in what we wanted, you know, would we still have detention centres? No. If we were still, if we all started to be vocal about climate change and, you know, stopped being complacent and pushed our ministers, would we have Scott Morrison being so fickle when we're, you know, at Scotland with the climate change? I'm like, what the hell are we doing? Mm. Anyway, let's go back to food. <laughs> so the scent of damper, so she makes the bread, it's moist and it's airy and it's fluffy. Mm-hmm. And and then how would you eat it, Sal? What would Lather you... it with butter. Wow. Yeah. And so, so you, so it's sort of you cut it in half. It's so that I'm thinking, it's like so. Mum used to make damper, and then like a big, just a big one, and then she started to make these. Well, when you say big damper. with your hands, like are you looking like are you are we an ant mound? I was like, <laughs> no, no, no. As in a big round sort of. And I'm trying to think, like, you know those big saucepans, uh, frying pans that you can get? Like It's like frying pan size. So you're talking like 600 millimetres, like 500 millimetres. Because, you know, she would – it's like you've got to remember, like, when you're making focaccia, when you get your hands into the oil, like she's doing that to spread it around (laughs) in the pan. And then it it rises. It rises in there and then – but also she – towards the – like she now does it in the way that she makes them sort of small mini ones together. A little bit more elegant. <laughs> elegant. So it's it's sort of like a, 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 a what is it, a, a plaited bread, I suppose you can say. <laughs> Petite. <laughs> yeah. But it was, it's so you cut it in half and just the steam comes steam, out. Steam, yum. And you, you know when it's the, when you have fresh bread and it's just like that bouncy sort of fluffiness. Mm-hmm. And then you just, I like some, uh, we all had our different ways. So I would lather it in butter and then close the, close it back up and just squish it together. So making sure that the butter was getting everywhere and you would put golden syrup on it. Oh, yum. But so my dad was also a beekeeper. So we always used to have fresh honey. And so if we want, like, so if we didn't have golden syrup, it was also, you just put all of that fresh honey on it. It was just like. Did you use the yeah. honeycomb as well? Yeah. So, uh, but I was, yeah, I was also the top. The top lid of the beehive was the best honeycomb because it was the proper thing. But I used to take that to, I used to take the honeycomb to primary school and just be like, 
I like you today. You can have a bit of honeycomb and you can have a bit of honeycomb. So oh, was, you're my best friend today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was such a little bitch, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, oh, I mean, my friends all got it, but it was also, it's all of those acquaintances, you know, like, okay, fine. You can have some too. <laughs> oh, here comes Sally Scales with the honey, the bee honeycomb. Oh, here she comes. with a friend. friend. Yeah. <laughs> How gorgeous. How many children how many children in your family? So my mum had five kids and my dad had seven. And you so, all came together. But, yeah, so there's four of us from mum and dad. Right, okay. So my half siblings are my older siblings. Yeah. And then um and then there's the four of us and so we were very much raised quite independently as well. So, you know, for us we my parents split when I was um young so I think my little brother was maybe five or something so it was it was in that space but it was very much like us because dad would be in Alice mum would be out bush my mum also was the chair of NPY Women's Council so the huge organization for my formative years so I got to see that leadership where she was <laughs> going to meetings and standing up strongly and, and supporting other women about why we needed an aged care facility or age reform, you know, um, reform for people with disabilities, you know, pushing that agenda or talking about family and domestic violence and how Aboriginal women need to be protected, but also we need to be at the forefront about anything to discuss with us. So, you know, I grew up at the knees of all these incredible women and an incredible father who just allowed mum to be her. Like it was just sort of like, when your parents are saying, you know, your Aboriginal side is strong and your white side is strong as well and you've got to be, you know, like that's where it is, is like that duality meant that I was always going to be doing something. <laughs> there was no, no slacking off. One of your food memories connects us back to your father, can you tell us about that one, Sally? Yeah, so so the thing that reminds me of my dad is a roast, a great roast. But we <laughs> and the memory I'll tell talk about is that we were at Bush um, in the APY lands and we, this was a very significant time for our family because it was when my older brother was going through his initiation when, you know, so... Becoming a man. Is, what do they call it? Men's men's business. What is it yeah, men's just business? we just yeah we just call it men's business, and so going through and is, is there a woman's business? Yes, always. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and we Here see... comes the sass. I wish you could see this screen, everyone. <laughs> I just got this little 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 sh- sh- shoulder shimmy. Yes, secret <laughs> business. <laughs> and always, I'm not going to tell you, you're not getting any honeycomb. <laughs> but like my dad loved a good roast I mean we're in our house in Alice Springs we had like a a drum oven outside so it's like a, a like a 55 gallon drum which was then cut and made into a like a, a barbecue I suppose you can say like a barbecue smokery, yeah. but it was like an oven outside and you put fire in there and stuff. So, yeah. 
it was in there that dad would make things and oh my god you know like because we lived with our dad my dad during the year like during school period in Alice you know and like mum was mum just wanted to be out bush with her family anyway so and then so dad whenever he made it lamb roast the leftovers me and my brother would have to take it to school <laughs> and you know like the, all those all the time having leftovers in in the pack and stuff but yeah that's my memory of my dad is is a roast. Tell us a bit more about your father and, and how your parents met. So dad was a Melbourne boy, so um, upper middle class Melbourne boy who sort of rebelled against that upbringing. Like dad went to, I shouldn't say rebelled, dad went to Greece and lived in Greece for a year when he was 18 and 19, 19 I think it was. Um, and that was back in the 50s where... You know, you could sell your blood to make a little bit of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so he came back and then um, went to northern Queensland um, and was up there with his first wife. Um, there was an ad to go and make, um, be a leather craftsman in remote, or I think it was a cut crafts person or something, in the remote APY, in, so in Armata. And that was before sort of APY had gotten its land rights back. Um, so this is back in the 70s that Dad and his small family went out there. Um, and then Dad fully just fell in love. So Dad had a um, background of being an anthropologist. And so he fully immersed himself in the culture and just fell in love with Arnungo. He fell in love. He was in Armada. That's where they made um, crafts, so leather bags all that sort of stuff. And then also they started making wooden artefacts and, you know, um, not so people were traditionally making the wooden spears and, you know, uh, Woomera, the, you know, the Jordinba, so all of the clubs and things like that, so weaponry. But, you know, this is where, when they started to make, you know, decorative bowls and things. And so that was the birth of uh, the Maraku, which is a, wooden artefacts sort of stuff that is now based out of Morijolu. He actually went through initiation himself and he was one of the first groups of non-Indigenous people went, that went through. So fully, fully fell in love and my dad's buried out there on the lands. So, you know, that's how connected he was to that space and I'm very lucky the fact that, you know, the skills that he left in me and my siblings and that leadership, people still talk to us about it. You know, one of the things Dad always did which is incredible and also speaks to how he wanted to live was that he never went to any meetings discussions without um Anongo being present because he was like well why would I go to a meeting about Anongo on their country or without you know uh, talking about them without them you know mm-hmm. so dad was dad pushed through that in that space like we have to be inclusive and so he was never without a partner but dad always physically made sure that Arnongu were at any any space he was at and it was about talking about you know Aboriginal agenda was on the item or whatever dad was like well this is my partner this is who I work with and you know so he would often make sure that whoever his partner on the ground was 
was in that space with him. Do you think that's where you kind of your your sense of um, responsibility and and strength and respect comes from as well from your dad's the way that your dad was with the For culture? Sure. For sure. I mean, that was all of that. And also, you when you have when you've got that power of understanding, you want to make sure everyone's included into it. And so, I mean, Dad, for that, Dad pushed through and said, you know, and also it made sure that all of us kids had both feet firmly on both cultures. You know, you've got to have Anangu culture and you have to have Pirampa culture. And it was very much, and laws and understand that and use use it for your community members. You know, I often talk about, yes, I'm a very privileged Aboriginal woman in the spaces that I will get to walk in and be a part of. But there are family members that aren't, that aren't privileged in that space. So I've got to make sure that I'm amplifying them, you know, and that's the skills that my parents set in me. But it's also the skills and that my elders put in me. You know, I, I had the privilege of growing up with so much incredible leadership and elders and grandparents who forced me to, you know, talk up for them. Did you see when you were taught both Indigenous and non-Indigenous cultures, did you see similarities and parallels? Um, no, because I was fully immersed in, like, you know, we were out bush primarily. But now I do. Now I do. And also for me, I also see the way... I can use, I suppose you can use the non-Indigenous, the white man's law in a way that you can use it against them in a way that's going to make for sure that your your Aboriginal communities get hurt. And I think that's where I'm really pushing with the Uluru Statement. It's like, well, this is, let's use this white man's law, which is the constitution, to change it, you know. That concludes part one with Sally Scales on Plated Three Food Memories. Be sure to listen to part two, where the conversation continues. Thank you so much for listening to Plated Three Food Memories. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it, online or in person. You can also subscribe, rate it and write a review. Bye for now.